As we approach Easter next weekend, uh, we are nearing the end of our year and a half long series through uh, the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me in your Bibles to John 19, verse 38, and we'll pick up there in a moment. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've covered the arrest, the trials, and the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth in the first century, which uh, in their eyes was just another agitator being executed, a false prophet put to death for the sake of national security and maintaining the status quo. Uh, it was not a noteworthy uh, day in their eyes. But we know in hindsight that it was God's plan from the foundation of the world. Uh, before he started creating, he knew that this was coming, that he would go to the cross on our behalf to reconcile humanity and in fact all of creation uh, back to himself, dying in our place uh, for the sin of the world. Uh, in his atoning death, as we've looked at these last few weeks, uh, we are set free, uh, we are cleansed, we are forgiven, we are adopted in. The power of sin in our lives is broken and conquered. Uh, the dark spiritual powers which seek to opp oppress uh, and oppose humanity, uh, their power also has been uh, stripped from them in the cross. Uh, powers that we could not have resisted before, uh, we now have power over because of what Jesus did there. Uh, not only that, but the law of God uh, is fulfilled and set aside, and the source of God's healing and life, the essence of who God is, is sort of cracked open uh, in the broken body of Jesus, and now it flows out uh, to a thirsty and dying world. Um, all of this and more is being accomplished in and through the cross of Jesus. Uh, in fact, as Jesus breathes his last on the cross, he says, it is finished. Another way of saying that is, it is accomplished. It is done. And we know that, uh, that much was accomplished there. He's saying, what, what my Father and I set out to accomplish from before the foundation of the world, it's been accomplished here. It is done. Uh, the curse that has arrested on humanity from the time that Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, that, that same curse was laid upon Jesus. And now uh, freedom and blessing and acceptance and redemption and even eternal life flow freely uh, from the cross into a dying world. Uh, it cost Jesus everything to be able to say this, but now he can say, come and drink. To all those who are thirsty, to all those who are spiritually needy, come and drink without cost from this river of life that is flowing from the cross. Um, all of this opened up uh, through this experience. Uh, but having accomplished all of that on our behalf, having said it is finished, he gives up his spirit and he dies. Um, and, and being both God and human at the same time, he experiences and dies a very real human death. All of his blood at this point is, is poured out. He is 
um, utterly and completely dead. And now there's this uh, dead body on the cross. This is what we read next, picking up in verse 38. Later, after Jesus' death, Joseph of Arimathea, who's on the ruling Jewish council, asked Pilate, the Roman governor, for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place, Lord, and we recognize um, that though many of us have made the decision to follow you, as we follow you, we have the opportunity to experience um, greater and greater degrees of freedom from the dark powers of this world, um, greater and greater degrees of knowing the truth and walking in the truth, uh, greater degrees of being formed uh, into your image, the, the, the truest uh, human uh, that, that ever lived. And so we pray, Lord, that as we gather here uh, in the power of your Spirit, you would continue that process, that you would continue setting us free, uh, liberating us uh, from uh, the, the nagging things that we still wrestle with, that you would continue forming us into the image of Christ, that we would have the sense of, wow, I'm, I'm becoming more free in the true sense, in the biblical sense, as I follow after Jesus. Would you come and do real things in our hearts uh, this morning in the power of the Spirit and in Jesus' name? Amen. After driving a spear through the dead body of Jesus, the Romans are satisfied that he is utterly and completely dead. The dead body on Jesus' right and the dead body on Jesus' left are likely taken down and thrown into a gutter or a trash heap. Uh, this was standard procedure for victims of crucifixion. It was um, part of the process because it was part of their shame and humiliation that they would not receive a proper burial but be thrown out uh, and exposed. Uh, which was a bigger deal in uh, Jewish cultures than, than even many other cultures. Um, but in, in this case, in the case of Jesus, the story takes a different turn. He isn't um, thrown out in the classic way that uh, a body of a crucified person would have been uh, under Roman rule. But instead, uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who are two influential Jewish leaders, uh, come forward and approach the Roman governor and ask for his body. We're told that Joseph has secretly been a follower of Jesus, sort of right under the nose of the high priest right there in the Jewish ruling council. 
Nicodemus, another influential leader, is there with him. And it doesn't say explicitly in the text uh, if Nicodemus is a full-on disciple or sort of a fan of Jesus or, or somewhere in there. So there's a little bit of room for speculation about him in particular. But it appears from the face of the text that both of them perhaps have secretly been following Jesus in the positions that they hold, uh, in the ruling class and the governing council of the nation. Uh, but they've, they've done so in secret, we're told, because of fear of the Jewish leaders. Uh, up to this point, they've been flying beneath the radar, and nobody has really uh, known about them. But now, in this crucial moment, they are in hiding no longer. They can't stay hidden. They sort of step out of the shadows and into the light to ensure that Jesus uh, receives a proper burial. And they do so at great risk to themselves. Uh, whatever they were afraid of before, whatever punishment uh, would have been inflicted on them, they seem to be taking that fear head on in this moment and uh, stepping up to risking what they have, perhaps all that they have, in order to see this through. Uh, they approach Pilate, the Roman governor, who in another surprising turn agrees to give them the body back out of Roman custody and into their hands. Uh, in order to be honored and receive a proper burial. And scholars debate why this is. Why would Pilate say yes to something like this when it goes against standard procedure and flies in the face of probably everything that the Jewish leaders uh, would have wanted? And the, I think the top theory in my mind is that he, he's feeling the weight and guilt of having um, executed an innocent man. If you remember when we covered that, uh, the trial that was held before Pilate, very counterintuitive. He's working to set a Jewish person free while the Jewish people are asking to have him executed. And it's clear through Pilate's uh, role and experience that he's not comfortable with it. He tries over and over again to set this man free. He eventually caves and executes him. I think this is a little bit of like, oh man, okay, we really... We really need to honor this man. So Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, and Pilate, all in a similar boat because they didn't feel they had the power, ability, and influence to set Jesus free and keep him from being executed in the first place. But now that it's done, there's this, there's this extra push of, hey, we really need to honor uh, this man. Uh, for those of you who have seen the movie Gladiator, uh, it's probably my all-time favorite movie, and I'm about to spoil the end for you. I'm, I'm sorry. But there's this man, Maximus, who's forced into slavery, forced to fight for his life. And through the process, there's all these people who are like rooting for him. They love him, but nobody has the power, ability, will to set him free. So he's there, every, and even though there's lots of people who are fans of him, it's not till like the moment that he dies, sort of the atmosphere shifts. And everyone's like, it doesn't matter anymore. We have to give this man, we have to honor this man and give him a proper burial. So if you've seen that movie, it might give you a little uh, insight into the shift in atmosphere that's happening. Of, yeah, we could, we didn't have the ability to set him free then, but we have to do this. We have to honor him. We have to give him a proper burial. So they take him down from the cross. They wrap his body in strips of linen. 
along with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, which is a bit lost on us, but this is a quantity of spices that would cost in today's equivalent at least $100,000 worth of spices that they've now brought to anoint the dead body of Jesus, an enormous amount. And not only that, but they take the body of Jesus to a freshly cut tomb that's carved into the side of a rock wall in the middle of a garden that's near the place of crucifixion. And I have no idea what that tomb would have cost, but I'm guessing it would have cost more than the spices that they were using to anoint his body. So he's buried here uh, in 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe, uh, as, and this is the highest honor that could have been given to him uh, in this place. If you remember Mary, the sister of Lazarus, before Jesus is arrested and crucified, she takes the perfume, and, and it's her most valuable possession. It would have been worth perhaps $50,000 in today's equivalent or more, but it's the most valuable thing she owns. It would have been her source of security. She cracks it open and pours it over Jesus to anoint his body for burial in advance. Uh, so if you remember that story and the heart behind what Mary's doing, it's almost like two bookends, like what Mary did in the beginning. Now Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are doing something of similar magnitude uh, after Jesus has died in order to um, honor him. It's a tremendous sacrifice, and it's a mirror image of the sacrifice that Mary made before he was executed. The other disciples are all at home, likely in hiding. They're grieving. They're afraid. But these two go boldly to Pilate and give Jesus a burial fit for a king. And can I just say, while we have our eyes on these two men and we're thinking about them and their story, that there will be times in your life where you find yourself in their position. Uh, we, there, there hopefully will be times in your life where you feel like Peter at Pentecost, just full of the Holy Spirit, announcing the gospel, open hearts before you, uh, a receptive audience, and people just receiving the gospel that you're sharing. And we love those moments, and that's a critical moment uh, in, in human history, actually, as Peter's doing that. But there's also a lot of moments where we're going to find ourselves like Joseph of Arimathea or like Nicodemus um, and sort of following Jesus, but because of the circumstance or the atmosphere of our family or our workplace or even the country or the government that we work for, uh, it feels a bit more like we're, we're following him in secret. Uh, and so perhaps the Lord would want to encourage you this morning, if you're in one of those situations, to continue to, to follow him faithfully in the midst of those places. Sometimes because of the, the culture or the context or the family or your employment contract or whatever it is, sometimes we find ourselves in places uh, where we have an option to follow Jesus faithfully, uh, but somewhat secretly uh, as we go, um, trusting that in God's timing, there will be a Joseph of Arimathea moment. So if you think about this, if Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had received Jesus and immediately made that public and announced that to the world, 
uh, they wouldn't be here in this moment, in this crucial moment, I think. Of re- they wouldn't be there to receive the body of Jesus if that was just standard procedure. And, and so we have to walk in step with the Spirit. We never, we, we never want to be dominated by the fear of people or silenced by uh, societal pressure. We need to overcome that as followers of Jesus, particularly in America. We can't walk in fear of other people, but there will be times when you find yourself sort of following Jesus and saying, God, where's, what am I doing here? What, what's the open door? I, I don't see opportunities to glorify you here. And sometimes years go by before there's this moment where you have an opportunity to put a, a kingdom-centered policy in place or to uh, defend Jesus in some sort of public way or share the gospel in, and honor Jesus in an environment where you wouldn't have been there. You wouldn't have made it to that point uh, if you hadn't uh, been willing to follow him faithfully uh, and, and honor him uh, in secret along the way. Uh, but anyhow, these two have, have done that. They've been following him in secret, and this is their moment. Uh, to step out of the shadows, to um, step into the light, and uh, to, to be there to receive the body of Jesus as it's coming off uh, the cross. And so they, they take the body and they place it in this freshly cut tomb in the garden. And as they do, this place becomes holy ground. This is now the resting place of the body of Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Uh, There in the ground we sing, his body lay. Uh, And a stone, though John doesn't share uh, these details specifically, we know from the other gospel accounts that a stone is rolled down uh, to block the entrance to the tomb. It would have been rolled downhill, sort of like a one-way locking mechanism. It would have been very, very difficult for even a group of people to move that stone out of the way. To make matters worse, it's sealed. And then we learn in the other gospel accounts as well that guards are posted at the tomb because uh, even even his enemies know that Jesus uh, had been talking about resurrection and had plans to rise again from the dead. So they uh, post guards there so that nobody can steal this body and fake a resurrection or claim that he's back from the dead because they'll be able to produce that body. Um, He does have plans to rise again, but he doesn't this day. This day, nothing happens. And the next day, nothing happens. For now, in this moment, the old body is dead. It's wrapped in linen, buried in this tomb. And that old body, that old creation, will never rise again. If anything is to come out of that tomb, it will be something completely different. Not an old creation, but something new. For now, his dead body lies there, lifeless, on the cold stone. It is finished.
And it's important that we dwell on this moment, on the burial of Jesus, on what it looked like, uh, what it felt like, the reality of what's happening in this moment. Because Scripture says that you were buried with him. And in fact, you don't remember this, but Scripture says that you were crucified with Jesus. You were there, somehow wrapped up in this event. And Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And again, he says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, this is shocking, but we have to wrap our minds around this. This is true what Paul's talking about. This happened. I once heard Terry Virgo say it this way. He said, how many of you believe that Jesus was crucified between two criminals, one on his left and one on his right? Like, show of hands, how many people believe historically that's what happened? If we were to hand out a survey, the vast majority of us if not everyone in the room, would say, yeah, I believe that. I believe Jesus was crucified between two men, one on his right and one on his left. Why do you believe that? Why do we believe that? The Bible tells me so. Yeah, we we see it in Scripture The Bible tells us that's what happened. That's why we believe it. You know what else Scripture says? You were crucified with Christ. You have the same reason for believing it. The same basis. You were crucified with Christ. Your sin was nailed to the cross. Intimately bound up in Jesus. Where is your sin? It is there. Nailed to the cross in the body of Jesus, in, in his wounds. He became sin who knew no sin. In fact, recently I was uh, in, a, in a season of really feeling... Um, a heightened or intense level of spiritual warfare. And when I would go to uh, pray or pursue Jesus, I felt like the accusation of the enemy was just right there, sort of accusing me and accusing others around me and just sort of breathing down my neck and almost um, shoving my face in, in the image of my own sin. And, um, and those who had sinned against me and, and things like that. 
And, and I was struggling to get those images out of my mind. And I kept bringing that to God in prayer. And I felt like as I was bringing it before the Lord, and just, Lord, I don't know what to do with this accusation, with these images, with this stuff that just um, doesn't want to go away. And I felt like within, as I was bringing it to the Lord, I felt like the Lord almost zoomed out the vision. And this uh, images and, and the reality of my sin and sin that had been committed against me, I saw as the image zoomed out that all of it was actually inside the wounds of Jesus. It's like as the image zoomed out, all of a sudden, whoa, if I zoom all the way in, I can, I can begin to see this actual sin that has occurred. But, it went, but really, as I zoom out, all of that, Jesus absorbed that sin. He took it into himself. He became that sin. And it was if the Lord was saying to me in that prayer time, like, yeah, the enemy can accuse you and he can try and get you to look at your sin. But you have to understand that when you're looking at your sin, you're looking at my son. It's, it's bound up. It's, it's locked up in the actual body of Jesus. You can look at that, but you're gazing upon Jesus as you do. Your sin was nailed to the cross with him. And Scripture says that, that not only was our sin absorbed by Jesus in this event, uh, but Scripture says that our old selves, the ones who were born in Adam, uh, born of the flesh, the ones who were slaves to sin, those old selves were crucified with Christ. And I'm a very visual person, so, so I, it's helpful for me to actually visualize that. There it is, my sin absorbed into his body. Anything the enemy would want to accuse me with is there, absorbed in him. And there next to him on another cross is me. My old self, the one who was born in Adam, the one who was a slave to sin and, and had no ability to resist, who had to listen to the enemy. That person is there, crucified next to Jesus. It's helpful, I'd encourage you to try and picture that in your mind's eye, if you can. The scripture says, you were there, you were crucified, your old self is dead and done away with. So when Jesus' body is taken down, and wrapped up and laid in a tomb, your old self was buried with him. You were there. Before you ever rose to life again. And sometimes when temptation is threatening to swallow you up, or you feel the enemy breathing down your neck with accusation or condemnation, sometimes you just need to see yourself there. Crucified with Christ. Buried with him in, in a tomb. Your old self is dead. 
the enemy wants to bring back old things, to, to animate old things, to breathe life back into it, but it's too late. It is finished. It's too late. Your old self is already dead. In fact, this is what we celebrate in baptism. You repent of your old life. You repent of the kingdom of darkness. You renounce Satan's kingdom. You renounce the family line of Adam. And as you do, your old self is crucified and included in that event. Then you go down into the water. And and as you do, you're identifying with Jesus' death and his burial. And for a few seconds, you, you are buried under the water. Your old self is gone. It is laid to rest. It is put to death before you come up again as a new creation, leaving your old life behind. Baptism is publicly announcing, embodying what's happened to you in Christ. You were there. You were crucified. Your old self is dead. Your old self is buried. And that old self, that that old worn out creation will never rise again. It's done. What rises in its place is something totally new, is something totally different, something not born of Adam and Eve and dust and flesh and corruption, but something born of Jesus and the resurrection and heaven and the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus told Nicodemus, if you remember that conversation, he says, no matter how hard it tries, flesh can only give birth to more flesh doesn't have that power, but the Spirit can give birth to a new spirit. You become a new creation. You are born again, and that old body is done away with. Praise the Lord. It's buried with Jesus. It's dead. It's done. It was accomplished. We'll end with this. These are Paul's words in Romans chapter 6. He says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? And some of the the great spiritual giants throughout the ages have, have said, You'll know you're preaching the true gospel if it begs that question. Wait a second. What? That's the gospel? That's how radical it is? then why shouldn't I go on sinning? I have the righteousness of Christ filling me up. I'm not under the law. If it's as radical as you why wouldn't I just go on sinning? Paul says, by no means. We are those who have, what? Died. Isn't that interesting? That's part of your identity. We are those who have died 
to sin. You're dead. Your old self that was a slave to sin, that was animated by sin, is dead. It's been put to death in Christ. So how can we live in it any longer? And I'd like to make the distinction here. He's, he's, he's not saying, for years I read this to say, it's ill-fitting. It doesn't make sense. And that's true. If your old self is dead and you're a new creation in Christ and you're a son or a daughter of the Most High God destined for eternal life in the kingdom, it doesn't really make sense to dabble around in sin, right? Like it's just, it's ill-fitting. It doesn't match who you are. Don't, don't put on those old rags. Don't, that doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And that's all true. But I think Paul's actually saying something even more radical than that. I think it's as, as radical as saying that you cannot, meaning it's not possible. You can't enduringly live in sin because the old sinful self is dead. If you've died to sin, you, you just can't live there. Not that, not that you shouldn't, though in a sense that's true. He, he, I think it's a level above that. I think he's saying your new self it, it just, it's like it's saying it's impossible. You can't go on living there. You, you're, you're pulled back to this place of life because your old self is dead. You're dead to the things that used to rule over you. Or don't you know that all of us were baptized in, who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his what? His death. That's not what they told me when I got baptized. I was going after his life. I want the life of Jesus. I want new life. I'm baptized into his life. That's not what Paul's saying. First, you die. You were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may now live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, and you have, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his, and you will be. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. You're already free because your old self is dead. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him in that order. Let's pray. Jesus, as we sit in this place this morning, we recognize in your presence that you died, that you died a real human death, that your human body was taken down from the cross, 
that by your grace it was honored, it was wrapped, it was buried, it was sealed, and it, that body never rose again. We praise you for that, Jesus, that it is accomplished, it is finished, it is done, and part of what you accomplished is that anyone who comes to you can now say, I was crucified. Not just that you were crucified, Jesus, that I was crucified, and I died, and I was buried before anything new sprang to life. So, Lord, would you show us in this moment the significance of being crucified with you, the significance of dying with you, and the significance of being buried with you? Because dead people are no longer under the power of sin. Dead people aren't dominated by lust. Dead people do not have to bow to jealousy. Dead people are not infected by bitterness. Like this, That stuff is done. And we're among those who have died. We've died to sin so that we might live a new life, a resurrection life. So would you come, Holy Spirit, and in your power would you open our eyes? In your power would dead things fall away? Would you help us now to sort of walk in the grace of God, to live under that resurrection power, that, that empowering grace that sets dead, dead things aside, ill-fitting things, things that we actually can't enduringly hold on to because we've died to them. Would you come, Holy Spirit, help us to work out the salvation we've already received with fear and trembling. It's accomplished. It's already done. We, we have nothing to prove. But we have greater and greater freedom to enjoy. We have greater and greater life to take hold of. So lead us now away from death and into life. your name and in your power. Amen.